Humans can become addicted to any mind-altering substances, drugs, legal and illegal, prescribed, alcohol, cigarettes, caffeine, and even food. You can also become addicted to behaviors and thoughts, work, exercise, sex, gambling, self-harming, internet porn, shopping, adrenaline, crime, religion, anger, worry, guilt, fantasy, perfectionism, fear, envy, power, financial trading, fame, codependency, and even grief. Ultimately, all addictions are about control, trying to not feel certain feelings and to create desired feelings instead. Numbness, perhaps, euphoria, excitement, courage. So, denial of a problem is one of the key symptoms of addiction. It's actually the only disease that tells you you haven't got it. What the fuckery is an addiction expert do? about to find out. My guest today, you've probably heard in a previous podcast, it covered they, them, theirs, more like intersex. You remember Seven Graham. You can't forget Seven Graham. Seven Graham has that lovely accent, and he kept on, he kept they. on correcting me to say they, they them, or theirs. I recall requested that he put on this button he told me about where it says my pronouns are they them theirs i don't know that that's going to help me <laughs> so i'm just gonna say seven what the fuckery do you do with addicts oh my goodness <laughs> but before mm -hmm. i just want to read what um this pamphlet from the hale clinic addiction center which is based in london by in london? regent's park yeah uh as a therapist there uh, Seven is the expert, is an expert at breaking through denial, an addict in recovery, would you say themselves? Yes. And very experienced at challenging the illness and helping families, partners, friends, and employers learn the principles of tough love to encourage an addicted person to face up to their reality and get help. Yeah. Help me. Well, I... Uh, well, like, help me understand. Sure. I um, became an addiction therapist because I'm an addict myself. I ended up in rehab in 2001. Um, I'd been drinking and taking drugs from the age of 12, which is young, uh, even for in England, um, starting drinking at 12. So I had a 20-year addiction career. I'd tried nearly all the substances that one can experiment with in that period of time. I'd... Ticked, ticked most of those boxes for the different ways you can become addicted in terms of gambling, uh, computers, uh, sex, well, uh, exercise. Yeah, I ticked, I ticked pretty much all the boxes um, except for... Self-harming? Uh, 
I didn't self-harm in terms of cutting. I did self-harm in terms of using substances in a very self-harming way, deliberately so. Um, kind of dice, kind of the Russian roulette approach to using substances because I had such low self-worth and unconscious desire to die that, you know, a lot of times I'd get to a certain level of drunken highness and not really care how the night ended in terms of my own well-being. Um, yeah, so I've got all of that personal experience. I didn't want to become an addiction therapist, though. I can tell you that when I went to rehab and did nine months of rehab, I wanted to get out of those rehab centers and get back to television and be a director and get my nice car, chauffeur driven car back and my nice big, you know, expense account and earn lots of money and win all those BAFTA awards that I should have won if I hadn't have ended up doing Saturday night entertainment shows because that was easy for me as an addict to do. So it was not my desire to become an addiction therapist. Um, uh, the people, um, the, the therapists who worked in the centres I worked in earned like £25,000 a year and my ego was still far too big to want to do that as a career even though I could see it was obviously a very valuable career and addiction therapists had helped save my life. I um, was banned, as I spoke about in the last podcast, I was banned from going back to, tel to television for a year and I was a post person for a year. When I was being a post person, um, I... A what person? Post, postal person. Oh, postal person. Yeah, postal yeah we person. call them mail carriers here. Oh, do you? Yes, when, when postal was, workers. When I was being a mail carrier. Yeah, there should, you go. You know what? I love your American accent. No, that's, it's so bad. It's so bad. I'm, it sounds as, southern. Whenever British people try to do the American accent, they just sound like they're from the, the south sad. all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. well, I love southern accents. So. Oh, okay. Yes, and no, that's on my list for acting skills I need to acquire. I really need to just get no American Just do your American accent. version. Yes. It'll, it'll work. Um, but Segways. In in that year, I did a, a foundation course in person-centered counseling. That's Carl Rogers' Rogerian therapy. Um, and I just got really interested in the therapeutic process. Oh, the dog. Oh, there we go. That's the beagle. The emotional support dog is making his presence known. He's lying down. Okay, phew, he's back to sleep. Good. Um, so, yes, I wanted to discover, um, just for my own curiosity, really, how had those therapists managed to help me stay sober and get clean and not go back to drinking and using when I was in the real world? Because for me, that year when I was being a mail delivery person, a very poor mail delivery person, I um, did a foundation in person centre counselling. And within a matter of weeks of uh, starting this course, I got a phone call from the Priory, Priory Healthcare, who are the people who I'd done their rehab. And they said to me, and I still to this day don't know how it happened, but they said to me, we hear that you're training to become a therapist. Would you like to come and work for us at weekends, helping out the counsellors and the nursing staff? And... Um, I, I thought, yes, that would be fantastic. I still didn't intend to become an addiction therapist. But again, in terms of my own learning, I wanted to find out, you know, I wanted to kind of see under the bonnet and find out what had gone, what had happened, you know, behind the scenes, what happens in the counselling room, what do the nurses really get up to? You know, I wanted to understand the process. I'm, I'm, I'm an anthropologist um, by academic training and I always love to know what makes things work, what, you know, what, why, how can a person go through such a huge shift in who they are? So I went to work for the Priory at weekends um, and I got taken under the wing of a very fantastic family therapist. One of the best family therapists in the world took me under his wing and very kindly tutored me. Then the Priory said to me, we think you would become a great therapist. We're going to pay for you to do our addiction counselling diploma and we'll give you a bursary. And so it was that thing of when you work, work the 12 steps of recovery, step three is made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him, her or it. And 
I was trying to get back to television as a director and doors were just remaining resolutely shut. I even got hired at one point and then the money disappeared from the project. Um, but the second I turned my vision towards becoming an addiction therapist, these doors just flung, flung themselves open. open. And I loved it, you know. I I did have a natural aptitude for it. I've always been a good listener. People have always given me the feedback through my life that they feel comfortable with me and that they feel able to tell me big things that they I don't. I can attest to that. Thank you. Um I think people can sense that I'm very empathetic. I'm very non-judgmental. I'm very loving naturally. I, I always look for the good in people. I always want to understand why a person has has behaved in the ways that they've behaved. Um, and and it helps that you've been there. Yes, I and mean, that's the thing as well. You know, my own addiction. I was raised by a good family, as we say in England. I had beautiful grandparents. I had a very loving family. I mean, we had issues because addiction is a family illness and there were definitely issues. My grandmother was a shopping addict. I was her little enabler when she when she was out on her shopping missions to buy her clothes and sneak them back into the house. I was the person who'd kind of go run behind the, the scenes. Cute and, yeah, the cute kid. Run, run and hang them up in the wardrobe before my great grandmother or her husband saw that she'd bought anything. You know, so I'd enabled that addiction. So my, you were an accomplice. I was an accomplice. So I, I understand shopping addiction very well, which is good for this town because there's a lot of it here. Um, and uh, my grandmother was also had an eating disorder, so I understood. Uh, you know, I, I was trained in overeating as, as a child, and understood the relationship between food and uh, love, and how food can become unhealthily kind of used and abused within a family system. I understood that firsthand. Codependency, you know, that the alcoholism in my family was actually in my great grandparents on both sides of my family. Both of my great grandfathers were alcoholics, and so the knock-on effects of that in terms of the codependency dependency and the trauma that created I got to witness and be around that as a child so I'm very much a kind of Al-Anon person naturally from the family I grew up in as well you started at 12 what was drinking drinking it starts mm. with alcohol yes now would you say there is a, a genetic predisposition to addiction yes there is definitely there are a number of fact one of the reasons I love working um, with people around addictions I'm qualified as an addiction therapist in Europe um, my qualification uh, isn't um, isn't uh, licensed by the California authorities so I'm not saying that I'm working as an addiction therapist here I'm going to start working with a small client base in terms of coaching um, I'm saying come and have a cup of tea with seven and uh, you know I will kind of talk and from my own talk. experience you know we'll have a cup of tea we'll have a chat and if I can help you that's great um, I'm not going to claim that I'm being anybody's therapist in this country because I'm not going to be I'm not going to work in that way and anyway my model of working is very different to licensed therapy in this country I'm a holistic worker I believe that each person needs a completely bespoke care plan we are not one size we're fit all. not one we're, size fit all and that's one of the things that's so wonderful about Los Angeles you can really be your unique brilliant you know, whoever you are, you can be that here comfortably. And that's one of the reasons so many people move here, creative people move here, is because it's finally, you, you find a place where you can, you know, you create yourself. Um, and in creating yourself, if you if part of that creation has been addiction, you know, if part of your response to trauma or to the fact you've got the genetic predisposition, and I do believe that a lot of people who are addicts have the genetic predisposition. But it's not just that. You know, if you're if you're an addict yourself and you get into recovery and you have a child, it, you're, you're not you don't have to worry your child is definitely going to become an addict or an alcoholic you can parent to protect children from this addiction um, and trauma is usually the thing the event that the, the key it. that triggers the gene into action yeah and that was certainly the case for me what I can also say though definitely is that I responded to alcohol and drugs differently to other people 
that first drink that I ever had. At 12. Um, you know, I say to people, uh, I, when I'm telling my story, I talk about my drinking at 12 because that's when it became a regular thing, you know, like stealing drinks from the from the uh, cocktail cabinet, cabinet, you know, making the horrible concoction of a bit of this and a bit of that so that the parents don't notice and then drinking it all down in one, getting completely blasted. I did a lot of that. I also grew up in Wiltshire, which is uh, like, say, um, the Midwest here. So very rural, um, quite remote. Family oriented. And the family social life in that village was in the pub. So the whole family would go to the pub. The landlord in my pub was an alcoholic. Um, I was always a precocious kid, always intelligent, always kind of, and I, I, I like to think that I looked older, but I, I look back at the pictures and I don't think I did. I managed one way or another through manipulation to get access, first of all, to Shandy's and then to cider, alcoholic cider uh, with lemonade in it. And then I managed to get rid of the lemonade and just drink the drink the pure cider. And I loved it. You know, that was very strong, very kind of like moonshine-like um, apple lic- liquor. Um, and... Um, I thought it was wonderful when I was a teenager in recovery. I had my brain scanned and I actually discovered that I lost 10, 10 IQ points in my addiction and lost what well, I had damage to the memory center in my brain as is, a consequence of teenage binge drinking. Is so, that the prefrontal cortex or the amygdala? Actually, no, it's actually in the back of the brain, the memory center that, that I had the damage in. But I again, I was very lucky. As an, as an addiction therapist, I've met the best treatment providers in the world. Um, I've been very lucky to do that because I advised the British government. I sat on the advisory council on misuse of drugs. Drugs, that meant I got access to the best therapists around the world and the best treatment models around the world. And one of the um, tools that I had access to is neuro uh, neuroengineering. Uh, neuroengineering, actually, I do NLP, neuro linguistic programming as well. But no neuroengineering technology, um, and uh, so I got to do a course of that, which rebuilt some of my memory damage. Um, the brain has neuroplasticity, and um, that this technology can actually help you rebuild areas of your brain that have been damaged by your addiction, and it really helped with my memory. Hmm, fascinating. Can you, let's go backwards a little bit. Who is an addict? What is an addict? An addict can come from any walk of life, literally from, from the, the, from the most disadvantaged background to the most, um, uh, privileged. privileged, wealthy, uh, established, famous, whatever. Addiction really is an equal opportunities illness. Um, again, that's one of the things I, I really like working. Let's put this in a different way. Cause it's like, I said not like, um, are you able to cut you're, this You're out? partial to working with... I, I just love the fact that I get through the, through the course of my career, I've literally worked with people from every single strata of society. I've worked with homeless street prostitutes and I've worked with people from, from some of the so-called best families in the world. Addiction does not discriminate. Does not discriminate. Bottom does not line. discriminate by race, does not discriminate by culture, uh, ethnicity, gender, sexuality... Although actually my community, the LGBTQIA plus community does have a higher addiction rate and there are specific reasons related to trauma for, for that. It makes sense. Yeah. It's about numbing. You, you're, it's avoidance. It's yes. avoidance, isn't it? Yes. Changing, changing. If you can't change the circumstances, if you can't stop the fact that you're still homophobically abused on the streets or, you know, not represented in culture and on the billboards and everything, then, you know, you feel different and difference that sense of feeling different and not as good as creates shame and shame is a big driver for addiction. How can someone know that they have a problem? Often, and this is because of the denial process, often the person themselves doesn't realize they've got a problem until it's very well advanced. People around the person 
are often the first people to realize because when you have an addiction, the denial process literally puts the blinkers on you and you may have 24 hours after the night before where you think, oh my goodness, I can't believe that happened or I did that again or I slept with them again or, you know, whatever. Or, or I, didn't, I don't remember or this I didn't or I laughed out. Or, or I turned up at the audition and I hadn't done my preparation because I'd been too busy doing X, Y, and Z, whatever. The, the person themselves may have a brief awareness that the, their relationship with substances or the addictive behavior, whatever it is, you know, porn is a big one these days uh, or, or acting out in various ways or maybe that you're just mentally not functioning properly because you haven't eaten enough. So you're not, you know, you're not performing in a way that you need to perform and it's because your eating disorder comes before your ability to function, whatever it is. Um the person themselves quite frequently doesn't realize, uh, but they will probably get people around them saying to them, you know, really you are doing whatever it is too much or I'm worried for you or whatever. And when you're an addict, I had those people saying stuff to me and I would like, A, first of all, I'd like poo-poo it. Then I'd get angry, like how the, Mm-hmm, you know who, what it was right their you, fault yeah, right their any fault. emotion yeah. you feel yeah. it's, someone else or, made you feel that way as an english person yeah. this is a great easy one if anybody criticizes your drinking in, drinking in england you you've Just got a lot of hunt. You, you, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's one thing you could do. And you might do that when you've had a few drinks. <laughs> but um, you can always find people around you who drink more, especially I think this is true for smaller bodied people. You know, there's always going to be somebody who can drink more than you who, or who, ha- you know, who is more of a mess. For me, part of my addiction was love addiction. So I was always in a relationship with somebody whose addiction was. F- so you can call them a cunt, but you said don't. Yes. <laughs> yes. So uh, for me, I was always dating somebody who was just slightly worse than me. Um, and I can remember in the in the last couple of years of my addiction, the person I was with, you know, could drink a lot and still carry on and not face the consequences that I was facing. But I thought that they were really bloody rude to be starting. They actually started calling me a junkie, which I thought was very rude because I wasn't using heroin. I had tried heroin a couple of times, but I didn't like it. Thank God, because I was too much of a work addict. And for me, you know, I much preferred stimulant drugs. Stimulant drugs combined with alcohol, that's where my sweet spot was because, it, you know, the alcohol would take away the fear and the insecurity and everything, but that would get messy quickly. So then I'd like to mix in, mix in some nice stimulant drugs that would sort out all of the motor functioning problems that come with alcohol. I'd be able to talk, I'd be able to perform, etc., etc. You were brave and bold. Brave and bold and sexy and confident and very intelligent. You know, I'm still having lost 10 IQ points. I'm still fairly bright, but, you know, I never felt like I was intelligent. For me, I, I wasn't ever very good with numbers. So I had this belief and also very rigid thinking. I had this belief that because I wasn't great with numbers, that, that meant that I wasn't really intelligent. And then kind of, so I'd, ta- I'd attached a small detail that wasn't perfect. And that imperfection would meant, mean that I was a piece of shit, you know, because I'm not all round fantastic at everything. So perfectionism, perfectionism was a, is a bit is a of an issue with you too, yeah? Oh, yeah, not just with me. Most addicts have perfectionism. And th- AA talks in terms of defects of character, personality traits that um, are, are, are traits that um, are such a kind of excessive kinks in your personality that they cause harm to your relationships with yourself and with other people. So I didn't realize for a long time, my situation was I, like many people, I thought an addict or an alcoholic was somebody who has lost their job or hasn't had a job, you know, um, that's financially not successful, that's not, not got their life together in any way. Um, you know, I had a very cliched view of what an addict or an alcoholic looked like. When people around me who loved me were starting to say to me um, that I had an addiction problem, 
Um, I couldn't see it because I did not fit my stereotyped image of what an addict is. A big part of my addiction, I now know in retrospect, was work addiction. And so ironically, through the latter years of my latter years of my addiction, I was getting more and more successful. I was a location director. I was doing stuff like directing for the BBC. Um, I did a, a shoot in Egypt that involved two he- military helicopters, seven or eight cameras, filming the world's highest tight roping uh, attempt over the Nile Valley. So I was getting more and more successful uh, on the outside, but inside I was dying basically and just kind of hating who I was becoming hating the way I was treating people yeah my ego was getting out of control because I was feeling more and more insecure I was I felt like a fraud you know as a location director you're in in charge of everybody's health and well-being you know so staying up all night drinking and taking drugs and then going to work you know having drunk a load of tea or coffee and and kind of a big smile on your face that doesn't cut the mustard it's not okay um and but you know the denial process again you think you're getting away with it you know I used to skateboard to the BBC because I thought this is my insane bit in thinking if I skateboard to the BBC then nobody's going to think I've been up all night drinking and taking drugs they'll they'll just think I'm sweaty because I come in on a skateboard they they will also be thinking god this person stinks of vodka why did they skateboard but that never occurred to me (laughs) wow amazing so you worked and you worked at a holistic center yes I sat up at I set up and ran the um, addiction treatment program at the Hale Clinic in and London. The Hale Clinic is rather famous, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a big deal. It's probably the world's best holistic, um, outpatient holistic uh, treatment provider. They have over 75 different therapists from all around the world working there. Um, it was opened by Prince Charles. Um, the royal family are big proponents of homeopathic medicine and alternative therapies and treatment. Prince Charles knows uh, Teresa Hale, who's the incredible woman, the doyen who started the Hale Clinic. I used to go there for treatments myself. Princess Diana used to go there quite frequently, and um, that's in the public domain. I'm not breaking her confidence. And she used to go there frequently for certain treatments, and they talked about them in the media. And so I started going there for those treatments, uh, oh, thinking, you know, I was taking the connection. Yeah, at first. yeah. So I first. Little did you know if, you'd if become it's good enough counselor. for Princess Diana. It's good, good enough, enough for me. me I bet. Yeah. What was you she know. getting done there? Do you know? Um, Acupuncture. Well, one of the treatments that I got there was colonic hydrotherapy um, because I was taking so many toxic substances. I'd regularly go and have colon hydrotherapy to try and flush it out of me. Um, and, and you found out that's what she was doing when she went there? Uh, I'm not specifically going to confirm or deny that Princess well, Diana did that. she was mighty there. thin. <clears throat> Well, which is in the public domain. She had an eating disorder, and people yes. who have eating disorders. That's one of the one of the um, one of the modalities that can be abused by people with eating disorders. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, so I started going there, and um, I met Teresa Hale, and discovered that they'd never had any focus on addiction, and they'd never put together an addiction program. So she and I worked together very closely. We met all of the therapists that she thought would be good people to work with addiction, or who were working with addiction, but not in a joined up way, and through that um and along with my ex-wife Ko Karashima um who uh, also you know brought a lot of expertise about um alternative health issues you know she grew up in Los Angeles and she's you know uh, uh, done a lot of self-healing I'm not going to speak about her too much as she's my ex-wife but she brought a lot to the table in terms of helping me, me with my thinking about holistic modalities um and Teresa um made these introductions and I put together bespoke care plans to work with people um, and our results were amazing, you know, because we found, and I knew this from my own personal experience, most rehab available in the world um, only treats 
I would say probably about, I don't know, maybe two thirds of the addiction in terms of the, the, the talking therapy part and then a little bit of body work maybe um, or a little bit of trauma work. Um, that's starting to change now. There's some good trauma rehab going on in America, especially um, places like the Guest House in Acala, Florida. That's very, very good. Um, but I wanted to really look at the whole person and really speed up the healing process um, because a lot did happens. You, did you work with Kelly Osborne? Because you mentioned her. Yes, Kelly Osborne um, came and lived in Britain for a while and she uh, was the um, presenter of the Sunday Surgery on BBC Radio 1 and I got invited to be her addiction expert on the Sunday Surgery. Um, it was kind of like a Dr. Fraser Crane kind of phone-in um, program for the young people in Britain and and um, yeah, we worked together quite a lot and that was a great experience. Kelly could see that I really understand addiction and I really understand all the different ways addiction can show up. And I love working with young people as well. I've done a lot of work with young people. Um, and she also could see from the phone calls and the way I work with people very quickly, I get to the root of the matter quickly. I don't take bullshit. I stand up to people in a very loving way. I don't care who you are. I don't care how powerful you are in the real world. If I'm talking to you I'm talking to your addict as much as the lovely person that you are you know when you're not being ruled by your addiction I will stand up to the addict and any person this is all via phone hello yeah. call number yeah, one yeah call number got, one you've, oh, got, you've got two minutes to, mm -hmm. to work with me yeah. but um, and then I, but also she could see that I you know I take working with people very seriously and so if I have worked with somebody even if it's just for a few minutes on air I would then also make sure the researcher would give them my contact information and yeah. follow up with them and let them know that we've had a connection I've started a process with them and I'm going to hand them over to other people to make sure that they get looked after because one of the problems I have with the way that addiction is treated in television programs I'm not going to name any names but it's treated as if you can do a quick fix for addiction and you absolutely can't there is no quick fix there is no magic bullet there's no medication you can take that's going to take away addiction I it's knew I knew an alcoholic mm -hmm. who said to me Although he was sober for 60 years, mm -hmm. he would refer to himself as an alcoholic. Yeah. And I would say, Jerry, why are you calling yourself an alcoholic? You haven't mm -hmm. had a drink in 60-something years. Yeah. And he would say, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Yeah. Is that true? There's an expression which I love, which is uh, you can pickle a cucumber. Once you've pickled it, it's always a pickle. It's never going to be a cucumber again. Mm -hmm. I think that's really true of the alcoholic and the addict brain. Um, but I also think that we were born with the pickle as well in the sense that our brains just work differently. When I had the um, had the lucky chance to do neuroengineering, they did a brain map of me. I did three hours of tests with my brain being completely mapped to see how it functions. And there are two main drivers of addiction that are brain-based. One of them is depression and one of them is a tendency towards compulsivity. Some lucky people like me tick both those boxes. <laughs> you know, I've got the I've got the depression gene from the Scots family. The kind of anxiety and depression. I saw that in my grandfather, especially. He was a very untreated, dry drunk. His father had been an alcoholic, and he sat in his armchair raging at the world and was highly anxious. Um, and I've also got the tendency to compulsivity. That's a tendency that apply it in the right way, and it can turn you into an Olympic winner. Right. It can turn you into a genius. You know, I've worked with some of the the best musicians and the best artists artists from all across the disciplines and in the world compulsion. and that compulsion can make you make you brilliant make you the best so it's not and in all your bad case, what happened 
uh, I didn't become a, 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 a Grammy-winning um, artist. Instead, I became a rather lackluster television director, turning out shitty Saturday night shows, which I had an aptitude for. I'm very. I, the first idea I got on television was roller coaster karaoke, which was fun. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say there's not a role for that kind of light entertainment. It was a lot of fun to film. Although I did have to ride that bloody roller coaster with about 20 people, um, encouraging them to sing and you know hold on to their wig. Are there clips of this in YouTube somewhere? I don't know. I think it actually predates YouTube. I wish there were clips. I also, I worked on a show called The Big Breakfast, which was a very groundbreaking television show. And I did some crazy shit on that program. And I wish that that was online because Mm. my first ever thing that I directed was Who Killed Gertrude the Duck? Uh, Anyway, we haven't got time for Who Killed Gertrude the Duck. It was very funny. It was a very funny story. So Poor Gertrude. We've got a, we've got a, this is, I can't believe the connection here because I happen to love this woman who's no longer with us. Mm. Amy Winehouse. You and she have a connection. How did that come about? Hmm. Um, Kelly Osborne was very good friends with Amy. And from when Kelly and I started working together, she started trying to persuade Amy to come and see me. Um, And she tried really hard to get Amy to come and see me all through the kind of latter stages of Amy's addiction. Um, Kelly could see that Amy was being put in front of some of the best doctors in London. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of doctors don't understand addiction. Um, doctors come from the culture of writing a prescription, give you something to fix the situation. And addiction loves that because we want to take more things. But um, learning how to live without substances and be clean, we don't like that so much. So Amy was running rings around her doctor and Kelly knew it. Um, Amy wouldn't come and see me until... Um, her manager Ray from the song Rehab and Kelly worked together and they got me at they got me into uh, the Grammys Amy was performing at the Grammys um, and she 2008 I'm just gonna check was it 2008 I'm really bad at remembering what year Anyway, there's lots of people in the audience who know everything about the Grammys, or you can Google it. Amy was up for best album. She was up for best female vocal performance. Uh, She was best up up for best song rehab. She couldn't come to America to do her performances because she had been arrested and so wasn't legally allowed to come to the country. So she was performing out of the Riverside studio in London. And Ray and Kelly managed to get me backstage. Uh, I set up a backstage chill-out room providing acupuncture in a very calm, chill, meditation orientated environment and all the band came to see me through the evening uh, and eventually Amy came to see me and had a treatment with me and we spent about an hour together talking um, before she got called to go and perform and we had a, we had a connection and I could see that um, I could definitely have worked with her I could definitely have helped her unfortunately it didn't work out that way what, what did happened um also that night I met the Winehouse family, especially Mitch Winehouse. And that's her father. That's her father. And I gave Mitch Winehouse an acupuncture treatment as well. Um, I probably should have realized that that relationship was a complicated relationship and I probably should have kept my distance from Mitch that night. I think that would have been... Father-daughter, you mean? Yeah, there was... Okay. there was. A, I mean, this is in the public domain, you know, of course. And, and uh, you know, it, it was meant to be the way it turned out. You know, of course, the kind of codependent saviour part of me would have loved to have helped Amy to stay sober because she was a great, great talent who we sadly lost. But that was her karma 
So I made a connection with Mitch and how things actually did work out was that Mitch went on to do a documentary called My Daughter Amy and he came to see me in my practice uh, in London and I had a session with him on camera um, and it was a one-off session but in that session I basically could see that he was still in huge denial about the seriousness of her drinking um, and the family were too. You know, many families, when they see their, 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 their young person taking drugs like cocaine and heroin, and then they see them stop doing that, they're incredibly pleased, obviously, and they think, oh, well, they're just drinking. But I had to explain to him that if somebody's still drinking. So it's not, it's not unusual for families to be so relieved when somebody stops using drugs like heroin and crack cocaine or, you know, opiates, uh, prescription opiates, that they think, oh, well, they, at least they're just only smoking cannabis or they're only drinking. only drinking. Yeah, yeah. that's not as so bad. As if that's not because so bad. Because that's the drug, obviously, that we as a society have, society have sanctioned. Lots of people, if you call alcohol a drug, freak out because they don't want to see alcohol as a drug. It's just drink. You know, it's made with lovely grapes. But of course, for an alcoholic or an addict, you're brain the area of your brain that the addiction is based doesn't really distinguish between the substances if you've abused one you'll abuse another it's like i say to people it's imagine like the addiction is like a fire in your brain every day that you have of being abstinent the fire dies down a little bit and um eventually you're left with just the embers but as soon as you take an, a substance be it you know have a have a it's spliff like striking yeah, a match. it's like striking the match or putting timber on the fire and off it goes again so i had to say to mitch and you can see this clip on on my youtube um i had to say to him you know amy is really in danger still as long as she's drinking really uh, unfortunately she's still in the danger zone um and she, that's actually what killed her as we know um and that was, I mean, that was a tragedy that Amy died because you get so few artists of that caliber. And she was really at the very start of her career. If you, oh, if you look at the documentary about oh, her, yeah. she was so just at the start of what she was capable of. And this, again, I've kind of, when I came to America, I decided I needed a total break from doing any kind of addiction work. I'd done it full time for over 10 years. Um, I still worked actively on my own recovery, of course, because as an addict, you can't be complacent. You have to, it's a daily program of recovery. You still have to go and do recovery meetings. She used to have, a, have to, well, for me, I have to have a therapist. I have to have people in recovery. I talk to frequently. I pray. I meditate. Um, you know, I use the therapeutic tools on offer. Um, so I haven't been complacent in my own recovery. I've been doing a lot of my own healing, but I decided I need to step back to have a break and kind of, you know, look after myself while I was here. I'm just at the point where I'm starting to head back uh, into seeing a, a, a small number of people. And I think that's, first of all, I feel like we're very fortunate to have you. Oh, thank you're you. a man with your expertise and your background and your empathy and the caliber of who you are. Thank so you. I'm very excited for folks who are in Los Angeles. And you work <laughs> with people via Skype as well. I do. So I've, you I've, don't have to be in Los you don't, Angeles. Well, you can be you. in Los Angeles and not have to physically be in the room with me. True. I prefer, if it's possible, I would always rather be in the room with somebody. Mm -hmm. I do also work with people in their workplace. Uh, if they've got somewhere in their workplace that they in can be away. In worst case scenario, I've, I've worked, with people, I've worked with people on Skype. I work with people on their planes. I work with people on their boats. I've you know worked with people in whatever work environment they're in. How can they reach you? Um, they can reach out to me at uh, seven Graham Solutions at gmail.com. That's seven like the number Graham like Graham Cracker Solutions plural all, all one word at gmail.com all of that on the show Thank notes you. as well yeah. the other thing though that i feel very strongly I, i've done a lot of media work in britain around addiction i'm the person who popped up on the news every time somebody like amy was in the news um and i've done a lot of that kind of 
public education work via the media and sound bites. I also would like to do some kind of uh, uh, a television program, um, bringing my tools uh, to America because the crisis that this country is in, in terms of the opiate epidemic, is heartbreaking. Uh, you know, lots of the young people I meet in Los Angeles have OD'd or know somebody who's OD'd. That creates trauma repetition. Uh, that is really making the situation very hard to heal from. If you've lost people who you're really close to, that trauma is very difficult. Uh, and unfortunately, addiction is not a rational illness. So even though a prescription pill may have killed your friend, when you're in real pain and you're in real grief, you turn to that familiar pill uh, or substance to, to overcome it. And um, uh, so, you know, I kind of wanted to walk away from addiction work completely, but I don't think I can. I think I just have to accept it's part of my karma that, um, you know, and I do actually really love it now that I'm feeling kind of, I've re refilled my kind of uh, energy tanks and my enthusiasm for, for, for using these tools. I do feel ready to go out there. And your analogy of doors opening, there's a reason why you're here now. Yes. So. Yes. It's more than just uh, my own creative career. I'm, I, and I think the creative stuff I'm doing myself, like doing stand up comedy and acting, and writing that's actually feeding my ability to work with people because again I think it's very easy for creative people especially to feel oh well you don't understand what my world's like you don't understand what my hours are like you don't know what the pressures of fame are you don't know what it's like to have people around you who are just never going to say no because they're scared because you pay everybody's you know bills etc etc of course I'm I'm probably never going to become an A-list uh, film star or whatever so I'm never going to have that unique experience but enough of my friends and enough of the people I've worked with and spent real time with have been through that process and really explained it to me that I understand the kind of psycho mechanics of it and I have empathy I have empathy for it as well and I also have a gorgeous beagle if you come and see him come and see me in my house I have Scotty the gorgeous rescue beagle who's very much a therapy dog um, you know he's he's uh, gotten a letter from my psychiatrist as my emotional support dog and he he spreads the love everywhere I, people may have seen me in Hollywood cycling around with my pink Brompton with my beagle and uh, Scotty is very much part of the healing opportunity that you have by inviting me if you like dogs bring Scotty to your workplace too Scotty he spreads the love beauty he is. He's yeah, got great, he's great energy. Mm -hmm. Wow. That was a lot of information. I don't know where to uh, place any of it. <laughs> There's so much in terms of addictions. You know, alcoholism seems to be what people tend to focus on a lot in this country. Mm -hmm. But we forget about all the other um, types of addictions like yes. gambling, it's the same pleasure center in the brain that's all screwy, isn't it? Yeah. Shall I say something that will make me very unpopular with some of the people who hopefully up to this point have thought, oh, they seem quite like they're quite nice or whatever. I'm going to say something that's going to put the cat amongst the pigeons now. I, um, I very much believe and have worked with many people who are cannabis addicts. Now, back in the day, back in the 80s, when I was smoking, when I started smoking cannabis, people used to think, oh, you can't get addicted to cannabis. You know, mm. that's just a soft drug. We even call it a soft drug, don't we? But, and, and a lot of parents may be happy or cool with their kids smoking, thinking, oh, well, it's good that they're smoking rather than drinking alcohol, et cetera, et cetera. I have to say, and having sat on the advisory council on mis misuse of drugs, I've got to see the most up-to-date scientific evidence, and we're still very much accumulating that database. Um, the strongest strains of cannabis, which are very new to the market, we're talking like 25 years uh, that cannabis has been changing, those strongest strains with much higher THC, much lower CBD, they are causing real problems, and they are causing physical 
physical dependency as well as emotional dependency. Um, you know, when people decide to stop smoking, they often are getting physical detox symptoms as well. Cannabis can really mess with your with your food, with your ability to eat healthy nutrition. Back in my day, it would be that if you got really high, you'd have to have the munchies, so you'd binge on yeah, now unhealthy you food. Now it's different. Now it can you know people can find they can't actually eat unless they smoke, or they can't go for a shit unless they smoke. You know, it's really affecting the body in all sorts of ways. So cannabis is indeed a gateway drug, possibly? I think it's more than that, actually. You know, I can tell you that some of the people I've worked with, it's easier to treat some people who are addicted to heroin than it is some people who are addicted to cannabis. And I'll tell you why. Yeah. Wow. A couple of things. First of all, if somebody's addicted to cannabis and they're smoking a lot every day, it's going to take between four and seven weeks for that drug to even leave your system. Okay. In terms of cognitive impairment, that takes a long time to recover. People who smoke a lot know that their memories are shit. They know that it's affecting their memory. They kind of make a joke of it often. Um, and, you know, if you've just been smoking for a short amount of time and that's happening, then, yeah, stop. And if you're over 21, um, you know, hopefully your brain will return to normal. But unfortunately, we're seeing from neuroscience that if you're smoking under the age of 25 and you're smoking heavily or smoking regularly, these stronger strains, you're causing p- permanent de- damage to your brain. Your wow. The brain is still... Cr- is still, still heat, growing, it's still growing yeah. and it's still kind of healing and developing its response to the world. If you smoke under the age of 25, then potentially you're never going to have the brain that you could have had. Wow. I know that people in LA especially oh, really you, don't like yeah, hearing this they, stuff. You may be unpopular, but parents, please hear, heed the I, call. I don't care about being popular. No. I'm not saying. It's you know, not I'll, about being liked, by I, the way. I don't, I don't I, care about being I don't, liked. No. Just be honest. I'm over my codependency. I don't need everybody to love me. No. Um, okay. I would say you know I'm not saying it's the worst thing in the world I'm saying I'm not saying that everybody's got to stop smoking cannabis now that's not my business if you're smoking cannabis and your life is functional and it's not impacting you and it's not impacting your family then good for you as an addict I can't have even one puff because I know that it will get out of control it's a trigger it's a trigger and it'll just take me back but, but also I, I, you are backed by scientific evidence you have the latest data yes. that you look at yes. so you are basically warning Yes. You're, you're flashing the hazard like, look out, this yeah. isn't so great. If we want to talk about cannabis as medicine, and of course there are some ways that cannabis can be a medicine for some people from some very specific conditions, but medical marijuana was used as a Trojan horse to legalize cannabis in this country. And smoking anything is bad for your lungs. Okay. This country did such a great job on smoking cessation and raising education about cancer, for the cancer of the lungs through smoking. Smoking cannabis is bad for your lungs and can lead to cancer. It's carcinogenic. Okay. Eating cannabis can still lead to psychosis. Um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to cool my jets at this point because I, I I know that I see the worst. You know, I'm the person who gets to go into the psychiatric hospital and see the young person who's been diagnosed with cannabis psychosis or even cannabis schizophrenia, cannabis, cannabis induced schizophrenia. People are going to have that diagnosis for the rest of their lives and be on serious medication to handle their schizophrenia for the rest of their life. So I've seen that. And um, that's not everybody. But I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. I promise you, having seen what cannabis can do when it's abused, I would not wish those symptoms on my worst enemy. Mm. So if you're a parent or if you're smoking yourself, please avail yourself of all the information, you know, and then use those basic harm reduction tools. You know, don't smoke every day. Reduce the amount you smoke. Keep it for special occasions. You know, treat it, treat it with respect, you know. How would you wean someone off cannabis? First of all, before I even begin that, I need to do a full assessment with them. I need to find out what their relationship with cannabis is. 
often people are using cannabis because it's it's really regulating emotions that they've got, which are very unmanageable emotions, especially in young men. Anger can often be a real problem. And so if you just suddenly just take the, take the cannabis away, cold turkey, the anger can come up and that can be really destructive. So I never say to somebody, let's just stop immediately. I want to find out what's going on, what the background is, what led to somebody being in this situation. And then slowly, slowly move them to a healthy relationship with cannabis if they can maintain a healthy relationship with cannabis if they're an addict that's not possible you know but I again move with the client I am client centered in the sense that I set goals with my clients that feel attainable and we work together and I support my client to to do that however I will call a spade a spade and if somebody's tried controlled use and it's not working and that the, the damages are still happening and I can see they're still harming themselves or their relationships uh, or going back into denial then I will call a spade a spade and recommend abstinence and then bring all the tools that I've got and all of the people I can call upon to help that person seven what can I say you are an addiction expert. <laughs> Thank you. As much as as much as one can be, it's a fast changing world, and there's a lot to learn. And I I would never get complacent and say that I know everything. I don't. And, no, and uh, you're still learning. You're still always learning. learning, and I bet you you learn every time you work with someone. Exactly. Yeah. And I I also think that we can really improve the outcomes. You know, I think that even some of the best rehabs in the world that cost you know hundreds of thousands of dollars for the treatment programs, the outcomes can be improved if we get more holistic. And if we treat all aspects of the human being, including their spirit and their soul, um, and even even really wackadoodle stuff, true, like generational trauma, ancestral trauma. You know, I've done some modalities which really are very freaky. But, you know, like past life regression, I found that some stuff that happened in one of my past lives was really affecting me right. here and now. So, yeah, this segment, what we're doing here, what I'm doing with What the Fockery is I'm just interviewing and having conversations with people who do all sorts of healing modalities. Right. And I am getting a past life regression uh, person to come and talk to us. Oh, wonderful. So that's exciting. That is really exciting. Yeah. I really like your approach to the work. You Thank know, you. we are not one size fit all. Mm-mm. And the fact that you sit there and you evaluate every person as an individual, hmm. I think is key. Yeah. And I feel such a kinship towards you because I feel a trust where should I have someone who needs your help or needs help, you would be the first name I'd give to them. Oh, thank you. That's huge. Thank you. You're welcome. And with that, I thank you for your time for your expertise you are my sister bro <laughs> <laughs> thank you everyone thank you it was a pleasure being with you likewise bye bye